Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another Fisher Investments Market Insights podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and current events. I'm Nash Srinivas, Group Vice President of Client Communications here at the firm. And today I'm joined by Executive Chairman, Founder, and Co-Chief Investment Officer of Fisher Investments, Ken Fisher. Hey, Naj, How are we doing? Great, Ken. Thanks for being with us here today. My pleasure. So, Ken, today I want to talk a little bit about your recent USA Today columns where you covered your forecast for 2019, but then also talked a little bit about the recent market volatility we've seen and what you believe lies immediately ahead. So let's get right into it. At the end of December, you came out with your column. We talked about your forecast for 2019. What was your forecast? Well, it was a little bit vague, but uh, it was for, by most normal standards, a big up year in the 15, 20, 25 percent or more range. That's specifically what I said in USA Today, uh, which seems big to people, but they kind of miss the concepts of uh, what's behind that and why that should be so. So we obviously ended 2018 on a little bit of a down note. Markets were more than a little bit. Markets were correcting pretty heavily in December, and you detailed some of the reasons why we believe that happened at the end of last year. Yeah, but before we go there, let's make another little minor point. The bottom in December on Christmas Eve is the bottom in measured history, whether correction or bear market, that's closest to year end. I just want you to think about that for a second before we go back to the causality. It goes down, 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 down until you move into what there's just a couple more trading days in the year. Why? Because what happened, the way markets work is what everybody always talks about is largely priced. People always think that's the stuff that's moving markets, but it's really usually some force that isn't what people are talking about for the most part particularly when it comes to panic. And what happened in December, starting December 3rd, that is the untold story, which I've written about in USA Today and tweeted about and other, I was tweeting about in December, is hundreds of hedge funds in America internally plan to close down by year end because they couldn't get back to their high water benchmarks and therefore without being able to get above their high water marks, didn't really have a reason to go on in life. We can come back and talk about that. But once they've made the plan to close down by year end, they weren't particularly expecting that all the other ones that were would be because there's no public accounting for this. There's no real-time documentation of it. You can get anecdotal information on it as it's happening, but only anecdotal. And then you got to kind of put it together, and most people don't go there. The media hasn't gone there. But the more they started colliding against each other, the more they pushed prices down, putting speed over priority for price, which then panics other people. So mutual fund flows start to go real negative then. And in fact, December is... Uh, as big a negative mutual fund flow uh, number relative to the size of total mutual funds as you can find uh, in history at any point that isn't a major bear market bottom. Uh, and from all that, that, that's the panic. But the, the mutual funds are panicking at the hedge funds colliding against each other, kind of like 
a large number of people in a big room with one door and suddenly somebody close to the door yells fire and they all start stampeding on each other to try to get out the door running over each other. Speed takes priority over execution otherwise. And whereas normally you'd be concerned about price, they're not expecting when they planned in September, October, November to close down in December that you'd have this colliding against each other to get out which led to American stocks because it's American hedge funds. I mean, the hedge fund world is overwhelmingly American. American hedge funds selling American stocks, making American stock market go down more than the non-U.S. market, kind of the reverse of what had been going on all the time before. Their collision and price implosion leading to the panic, getting a 10% drop. Uh, that part, which is the bottom of the V that I, I've talked about in my columns and talked about the concept of the V in market bottoms for you know a very long time, uh, leads then to the springback. And that springback is 10%. And that springback makes, which, which is basically mostly the beginning of 2019, makes the forecast for the year actually not as big as it seems. You take the, you take the 10% out and it becomes a smaller number. So let's go back to hedge funds and them not being able to hit that high watermark because I think that speaks a little bit to the timing of everything here. Can you help our listeners understand what it is about this high watermark and hedge funds being unable to get to it that causes them to liquidate? Yeah, so the hedge fund relationship is a contractual one. Uh, it typically only allows exits at certain future dates. Uh, the compensation to the hedge fund is varies, of course. It, it's all a contract, so it's what's the contract. But most typically, the big incentive for the hedge fund is a twenty is getting 20% of return in a year above a designated high watermark. If you're not above the high watermark, you don't get the 20%. Of course, the more you're above the high watermark, the more money the hedge fund makes. The fact of hedge fund life is the further you get behind the high water mark, the more you need to come back to make up for it. So if you think about a material minority of the hedge fund world getting further and further behind high water marks from three years in a row of benchmark under, of, of hedge fund underperformance, in 2016 and 17, hedge funds were hugely too bearish getting behind their high water marks. They flipped into a lot of them, enough, a big enough minority in absolute terms relative to the hedge fund world, switched to bullish at the beginning of 2018, which is no sin, but they're wrong. And now you get three years in a row and too far below the high water mark. And you say, what's in my incentive? My incentive close down and start up with some new partners so I get a new, uh, a, a new benchmark to start against. You make your money in that business, in that business model, off of beating, of getting the 20% above the high water mark. Once you get behind enough, you lose your incentive, you close down. The close down is going to be most convenient at the end of a year. Why at the end of a year? Because you wipe everything, including your own personal tax accounting and everything else behind you, start over. So this year, as the year got worse, as the year wasn't so good, as they're behind, 
a, a lot of them closed down. You can get the anecdotal evidence. There is no accounting for this real time. So at this very moment as we speak, I don't exactly know how many have, have gone through this. We will we'll really not know until we get off into the period of probably May to really be able to put a hard number on how many and how many dollars. Uh, but uh, you can do anecdotally that it's huge compared to other times in the past. And of course, the lack of quantitative data speaks to maybe one reason why a lot of people in the media haven't picked up on this story. and You don't hear it reported about much more. And most of what's been going on in the media in, uh, in the last few months, and this is actually the last few years, is the same stuff feeding on itself. Uh, you, you know, I, I don't understand why some of it's the way it is, but w once people start talking about something, they keep talking about the same things, and media doesn't typically look for different, new, how it might be wrong. Uh, the journalistic world that I was involved with when I was young had a lot more, if you will, internal challenge to it than the world seems to have today. Journalism today uh, has been literally, quite literally, challenged for a long time financially since the introduction of the Internet. Uh, they've been losing money or gone bankrupt. Actual journalistic headcount hugely shrunk. Older, more high-paid people replaced by younger. Um, it's an ugly, That world's an ugly world. And in that, I don't think they ask the challenging questions they used to ask. I mean, there's, there's parts that do, but it's it's much smaller. So we've talked a little bit about how markets have this V shape. On the way down, they look like the left side of the V, and then after bottoming, they look like the right side of the V. What are the categories that lead you on the way down, and then those categories that bounce back on the way up? Let's let's rephrase that. There are no rules about what leads the market down. It depends what's going on. In the V, you start off gently. The beginning of bear markets is not brutal. The beginning of corrections may be brutal. But the bottom of corrections and bear markets is a near straight down line that doesn't last very long in time. And the bounce back from that is almost as steep an ascent as the decline was a descent. That's the V. The V is the end of a correction and beginning of the aftermath of the correction or the end of a bear market and the beginning of the next bull market. Bear markets are different than corrections, but in corrections, almost anything could be the part that's leading it down because corrections are about sentiment almost purely. And what tends to go down the most tend, tends to bounce back up the most in a correction. Not perfectly so. There are exceptions. Markets have that quality, but mostly. In bear markets, you can actually categorize it, and the bounce back from this hasn't been a bounce back uh, like you get off the bottom of a bear market, because if it was, uh, you'd see small cap value stocks leading, and they actually haven't been at all. So what are some of the other categories that have been leading right now? Uh, so A, because the bottom part of the descent was uh, American-led, uh, the bounce back has also been American-led. It's been led by categories that got hurt really badly in this, which include uh, primarily tech, uh, energy, uh, going back to the parallelism, which I haven't written about, but you can actually kind of foresee if you think about it in uh, the correlation recently of oil price to stock market uh, and uh, also drug. 
Uh, these are categories that did really well before or pretty well before, depending on which you're talking about. It got hammered really heavily and bounced back most heavily. So how long can this V recovery last? About as long as the descent occurred. So the way I would say that is the descent starts October, beginning of October. Uh, it doesn't start off rollicking, but it rolls and gets worse in October, has some stability in November, and rolls again into uh, December. With some adjustments that you might make, you might think of just kind of flipping that off over to the other side and thinking of a couple of months with ascent and sideways maybe, then a little more ascent. Maybe not perfect, but not, maybe not mirror image. There's, I think there's some reasons why it might not be quite mirror image, but pretty good. And so far, that's been pretty much okay. It's not quite as steep an ascent as it has been a descent, but almost. What are some potential negatives that you're watching right now that could potentially derail your forecast for 2019? Would leading economic index numbers around the world turn negative? Would economies that have been uh, growing start to show uh, negative uh, purchasing manager indexes? Purchasing manager indexes reflect what went on in the prior month. They're released fast after the uh, end of the month. And if they're above 50, they're indicating some little or a lot, depending on what the number is, of expansion in that month. If they're below 50, they're uh, registering contraction. Uh, and they're broken down uh, in most major countries into subsectors like manufacturing and services. Uh, and when you look around the world, uh, for the most part, in the places where the economy has been a little on the negative side, the, the PMIs are actually positive. Uh, it's a growing world. If, for example, the Eurozone LEI, which is running currently at about 118, uh, were to turn negative, that would start to concern me. Euroland's big. Does it bother me that a few of the European countries within the Eurozone are weak? Not as long as the total Eurozone isn't, if you follow the logic here. At a time like this, most people are focusing on some singular negatives and extrapolating them into the future and into size. It would concern me if people went the other way and actually started focusing on macro things, uh, which they haven't been doing. You, you, you take, let me give you an example of that that I think listeners might remember. You remember the day uh, after Apple made the announcement about problems with their uh, forecast for revenue? S stock market uh, fell back down after it had its 5% move. Uh, the fact of the matter is the next day after that, it bounced back. Uh, what people did is took numbers from a single company and extrapolated them out into a big deal, as opposed to thinking about all the other companies and haven't already looked at that and said, is this one reflective of everything? What are we hearing at the same time from all the others? In which case, they wouldn't have gotten excited at all. I noticed you didn't mention government shutdown or China slowing down or trade war fears or Donald or Trump the, or Donald Trump or the Fed hiking interest rates. But those seem to be the only things the media is focused on. No, right Jeff now. Bezos is divorce. That's right. That's another one that got a lot of headlines recently. What, why is that? Why is it that these fears continue just to be, as you put it in the past, like cows chewing on cud? These things just don't seem to go away. Well, let's talk about uh, Jeff Bezos' divorce for a moment. 
Now, quite literally this morning, I looked online at a major website and saw a story headlined, Trump weighs in on Jeff Bezos's, on Bezos's divorce. And I said, huh. Now you read the story and it quotes a reporter asking Trump at a, uh, at a press conference, uh, what do you have to say about Bezos's divorce? And then it quotes uh, the president as saying, I wish him well, I wish him well, it'll be a beauty. That's it. The rest of the story goes on and repeats things that had already been in the press, rephrased from the prior couple of days. Um, that's the world we live in right now. Uh, it's, it's classic cud chewing. And uh, let, let, let me get this right. We put a headline on about Trump because that gets eyeballs that says, I wish him well, I wish him well, it'll be a beauty. Now, how important is that? I mean, that's the world we're in. And the fact is that probably does get clicks and it probably sells, but it doesn't really help you see reality, it actually distracts from reality. But let's go a different direction. From the time the government shutdown started, of which there's been a lot of media about the government shutdown, which direction have markets gone? Up. Yeah, so therefore, rather obviously, the actual realization of the government shutdown hasn't been catastrophic now to markets, has it? And so is there a reason to think that tomorrow will be? No. Does that mean tomorrow the market's going to go up? No. Um, but the fact of the matter is the stock market's already told you, as it's told you so many times before, that government shutdowns are really not central to thinking about how markets work. In your December column, you talked a little bit about presidential third years and how, historically speaking, the third year of a president's term in terms of stock market returns are pretty darn positive. 91% of history plus. How does a government shutdown impact that presidential term anomaly? Doesn't. We've had lots of government shutdowns before. We've had so many government shutdowns, people forget that. We have this really long history of government shutdowns. They haven't always been the same because in history, they haven't been shut down uniformly all the time. But the fact that the government shutdowns in, I mean, we haven't had a negative third year of a president's term since 1939 when the market was down nine-tenths of one percent as World War II starting. Uh, the fact is, I've got reasons I articulate for why I think that happens. I do believe it's causal. I do believe it's basic. I do believe it could not occur. I do believe something can overpower it. But it's a positive force and something that doesn't otherwise have impact on markets like shutdowns of which we have a very long history with no consistent impact whatsoever on markets. Why would that take something that's otherwise significantly positive and overwhelm it? Ken, anything else you want to share with our listeners today? The drop in 2018 led at the end by the hedge fund induced panicking into other portions of the world that panic, putting price, a uh, speed over price, leads to this drop at the end of the year that makes the total year return kind of worse than the average throughout the course of the year, more so than almost any year in history. And from that, when you look forward, I'm just going to say bad years in capital markets are followed by good years unless, any way you define it, unless you get a global recession or a global world war or both, as I said in my column. And the fact of the matter is 
We're not going to have either of those. If we're going to have a global world war, we shouldn't be talking about any of the things we've been talking about. And therefore, the numbers in 2019 should be bigger than what normally seems like big simply because of what happened in the last quarter of 2018. And that's hard for people to get into their head because they want to take recency, what behavioralists call recency bias, and extrapolate it into the future, which is exactly backwards from what you should do with capital markets. Ken, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. If you want to read more of Ken's thoughts, follow him and his other 288,000 Twitter followers. His Twitter handle is at Kenneth L. Fisher. And if you have feedback on this podcast or have ideas for subjects you want to hear us talk about in the future, email us. Our email address is marketinsights, all one word, at fi.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2019.